Welcome to the Mind Money Spectrum Podcast, where your hosts, Aaron Ogti and Trishal Patel, go beyond traditional finance questions to help you explore how to use your money to achieve the freedom you want in life. In this episode, Trishal and Aaron discuss investing in emotions when markets are at all-time highs. Should you capture some of your gains or wait for a dip to buy? By focusing on the process and separating your lifestyle concerns from your investment statements, you can mitigate your stress and anxiety. And for most people, the fact that the markets are at all-time highs should not factor into your investment process at all. And now, on to our conversation. Hi, my name is Aaron Ogti. I'm a financial advisor in the Bay Area, and I'm here with Trisha Patel, a wealth manager on the East Coast. Hey, Aaron, great to be here today, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Great to be here as well. Today, Trish and I are talking about the emotions that people feel when markets are are at all-time highs, this feeling that you've benefited so much recently from investments in stocks, whether it's a individual stocks, company stock, or a diversified asset allocation that emphasizes US large cap. But you've benefited so far and so we and we can't predict the future. And so this is natural where like reversion to the mean is a real thing. And so how do we have kind of un- think about this idea that could the stocks drop which is a very realistic possibility. So can we do anything about that? And Trish and I will kind of talk about both the, there's some, some kind of planning advice and there'll be a lot of themes that we've discussed in the past, but also really focusing on the, the emotions of how you feel when stocks or the market or your personal investments are at all time highs. So Trisha, when, when you first kind of think about this, either for yourself or questions from clients or questions from just friends and family, when markets are all at all time highs, what are, what are some of those, those feelings that you come at, that, that you kind of perceive based on conversations? Yeah. So to put that into context, we can kind of layer in where we are right now and kind of talk about the feelings that might be going through individuals' minds given the current context of things. So it it just so happens on this day that we're recording that we are at a all-time high or or very close to it. What that means is, for example, the S&P has hit around 3,852-ish and change. And what this also means is just looking back over the X amount of years since 2008, we've had just year after year of solid return. We all know there was a a really nice rebound in 2009. It was probably like 30% or something. But 2008, 2010, that is, we're up another 15, 16%. And that trend kind of continues where I'm just going to read off numbers. Okay. You know, 2% the following year, 16%, 32%, 13%, 1%, 12%, 21%. Whoops, 2018 was a sad year. 
everybody <laughs> lost maybe four percent boohoo right but then the following year 2019 up 31 percent and then last year out of all years the market's up 18 percent so there's probably some understanding that markets don't usually go up in a straight line maybe 2018 was an anomaly for those numbers but typically you would expect to see some down years and some negative returns here and there, but certainly it's been a, a really, frankly, incredible run since the last great financial crisis. And what's probably going through individuals' mind at, at the start of this year is how long can this fund last? You know, are we nearing the end given everything that's happened? And essentially, now that we're at an all time high, it's maybe a good time to be nervous. I, I think I think that's kind of what I want to separate is that we'll give a kind of standard financial planning conversation that, that we've talked about many times in the past. And but that that feeling of being nervous, is that an acceptable feeling? It, I, I guess I don't want to discount how people feel but it is it is this kind of difference between we're not we, we're definitely not predicting the future and and we talk about this all the time and it is extremely possible that 2021 and 2022 are also both up it, it's even possible that they're up again above their long-term historical average that that's a realistic possibility. And so when it comes to financial planning, we, we talk about kind of tying risk and asset allocation to time frame or goals or risk tolerance. So if you are buying a house in the next year or two, you leave your down payment in cash. I don't care what the S&P 500 does over the next two years. You leave your down payment in cash. Anything you're using for the, for, two years from now. If you know you're going to use that money, leave it in cash. If you think you're going to need this money on the scale of, say, five to seven years, okay, maybe we can do like a, a bond-heavy asset allocation. Some, something definitely less than 60-40, 60 60% stocks, 40% bonds, maybe something 50-50, 40-60, even like 20% stocks, 80% bonds. I, I, those are all good allocations for an intermediate time frame again kind of depending on your risk personal response as well if you're going to be heavy in stocks this is money that you're not going to touch for 10 years anyways and so the financial planning perspective is yes we're at all-time highs but if we're not going to touch the money for 10 years i i kind of don't care if 2021 is a big negative year that that I'm willing, I'm going to hold on to it and take that risk, and I'm just going to wait wait it out. And this especially applies to retirement accounts, which have uh, age restrictions on taking money out. So if you're not going to take the money out till 59 and a half, anyways, then around your late 40s, early 50s, uh, that's when you might consider reducing the stock exposure. And so this is kind of how we just from financial planning perspective deal with this idea. And I do tell clients when making 
financial planning projections, kind of looking at cash flow, spending, savings, and uh, forward-looking projections on rate of return assumptions, I do reduce those assumptions. And so if markets are all-time highs, then I do kind of expect that reversion to the mean over the next 10 years, not meaning that it's going to go down, but that it's a better expectation that equities will return less than their historical average over the next 10 years. So if if the stock market has averaged closer to 10% over a century, I'm assuming like 7%. And I, I kind of, that that's the, the rough number I bake into my financial planning projections. But that that doesn't necessarily deal with that feeling of being nervous. Like I'm, I, and so it feels weird to kind of acknowledge reversion to the mean exists. We're at all time highs. I'm reducing my return expectations, but I'm not actually changing the investments at all. And so, like, am, am I just ignoring data and ignoring all time highs and putting my head in the sand and, and just hoping it'll work out or is this like i'm trying I, I keep coming back like how do we deal with that feeling it's a very good question i think it's always kind of human nature to want to anticipate trouble and kind of react to it and hopefully bypass it by being proactive in that manner and with the market, there's always this temptation that if you're able to pull that off, then you can kind of be like, you know, a market champion and, you know, save your, <laughs> your portfolio from disaster. And it's quite alluring because you might even hear tidbits here and there of people who have done it. Like before something bad happened, they went to cash and then something bad happened, the market dropped, and they, they jumped right back in at the right time. And it's very tempting to find a lure in, in that type of understanding that, that, you know, somebody pulled it off. But the, the tricky part is, it's a very hard thing to do. You know, as far as actually what needs to be done, well, you know, you point and click and you put your trades, you know, that, that part isn't <laughs> difficult. But the actual timing of the execution is the very challenging part. Meaning the, the reason we, we kind of say, you know, we're not that concerned if the market's down next year, if you have a long enough time horizon is because, yeah, eventually the returns will come back and you'll kind of make things up and you'll be ahead of where you are. But the other reason we, we say that that's not, it's okay if the market's down next year is because it's very hard to do anything else, meaning it's very hard to anticipate the market being down and reacting to that and coming out ahead because there's an opportunity cost if you're wrong. And it's a pretty big cost. Do you have an example? Yeah. So something that I kind of thought about at the beginning of 2018, when I started writing on putting out some material on this type of stuff is Again, the, the, at the beginning of 2018, we were near an all-time high. And, you know, I just had a little thought experiment because also at the beginning of 2017, we were near an all-time high. Of course, given the fact that the market's been up uh, 
year after year after year, there's been many, many all-time highs <laughs> for the last decade or so. So that's not too common. But there's something about the beginning of the year that kind of lets us, you know, take pause and reflect and then kind of open the question again, should we still be invested now that we're in an all-time high? We'll talk a little bit about why that question comes up, but needless to say, 2017, at the beginning of the year, somebody might have been asking themselves, okay, the market's been on a tear. Things have been almost too great. It's been almost a decade since we've had a huge downturn. What if I just kind of sit on the sidelines and wait till a dip to get in? Let's say I've received like a bonus check or something like that. And I want to kind of put it to work, but I'm reluctant. Or I've sold out of some positions at the end of the previous year because I just wanted to take rebalance my portfolio or take some losses for tax reasons and whatnot. And now I I have some cash to put to work. Well, the age-old question is, do I put it all in? Do I dollar-cross average it? Or do I wait for an optimal time? And 2017 was an interesting year because if you did wait for that optimal time, meaning for just a a few percent dip or a 5% dip, something like that, it never happened for the whole year. Basically, you had a period where the market just kept going up and up and up. And again, this was a period where it just came off of a, a pretty good set of years where the market also continued to go up, up and up. So at the end of 2017, the market ended up around 22%, including dividends. And the concern is, if you waited for that dip, A, you would have never seen it. But now (laughs) you've just created a hole for yourself of being down 22%. So then then the question is, okay, now you need to catch up. So for the next 10 years, you got to outperform the market. If the market ends up performing around 7% for the next 10 years, that long-term average, Aaron, that we talked about, Yeah. well, what would you need to do to catch up, just get back where you were? Well, you you need to get around a 9.4% return, almost 2.4% above the market year after year. And what we kind of understand is pulling something like that off is something that the best investors on the planet who do this professionally have very trouble doing. So I, I think that's a, that's a really good kind of way to look at it. Just if you can really think rationally and just this, I don't say you have to be confident, but, but acknowledging your fears and, and kind of, if you were to take action, like not necessarily like try and predict the future, but it's like at least understanding the alternative it's like if you were to do this and you get and you miss out on a 20 percent gain it, it there's no realistic way you're ever going to catch up with that 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 this speaks to the unpredictability unpredictability of the market and so just buying and holding and just being in the market participating in this growth is kind of the only rational way to really move forward like it, you going from stocks to cash it just kind of never works or it does so rarely it, it's more like the wider perfect we've talked about in statistics it's just it's not repeatable it's just someone happened to do it but the odds of you doing it successfully are so low it's not worth pursuing so that, that's a really good kind of rational 
yes, you're invested in stocks, but trying to change any of the strategy based on being on an all-time high likely isn't going to work. You're, you're, you're likely going to be to miss out more than you actually do well. But I, I still think about that kind of, you, like you mentioned the bonus check. I, I, you know what, maybe that's, uh, that's probably the kind of next part of a conversation. I'm, I'm trying to think of like how often this comes up in real life scenarios. Because it feels like it's a, a headline of people who actually like sell out and go to cash. I know it does happen, but I don't think it happens as much as media would like us to believe. Because when I think of the the actual client experience, I, one, I guess because they're working with me that they're not selling out of stocks going to cash. But that idea of I have a large amount of cash I'm ready to invest, sh- should I invest now? Or I'm invested and I want to get out. Like I, I feel like the those situations just don't come up as much. But And that's what I'm wondering, like, I'm trying to think of some examples. You mentioned the bonus check. That's actually a pretty good one. Like, like you, you, you get a large bonus. So you have money that you don't necessarily need for current lifestyle, and you want to invest it. And you're trying to decide when to what, what to actually do with that money. And I think that that might come up. I, I personally, uh, I had money ready for a down payment on a house years ago. And we ended up not using all of that. So I had cash that I was ready to invest. And I was like, okay, we, we got our house. Let's go ahead and move forward. And and so I did have that several years ago. So I like those situations of having either cash ready to invest or you're already invested moving to cash, they do come up. But they, I think they tend to be lifestyle-oriented rather than investment decision related does that does that make sense what i'm saying it does i I think uh, maybe to distinguish this a little bit that there might be two sets of scenarios that that come up commonly around this one is if you're dealing with a you know client or prospect or just an individual who happens to be more actively managing their personal investments, then I think it's more likely to come up because when you're actively managing an investment portfolio, well, there's two key questions to make. One is, you know, when do you make an investment? And two is, what do you invest in? And if you've made these types of investments and all of a sudden your investments are quite high, it might be sensible to sell those investments, at which point now you're left with that question. Okay, now what do I buy next and and when should I buy it? So I I think it it might be common in those types of scenarios if you're used to buying and selling and turning over your portfolio. Something that we may have noticed in in, um, in trends is that if, if somebody is actively managing a portfolio, well, then that total turnover of the portfolio between going all in to all cash to back to all in is close to, you know, one, one time per year, meaning this decision may come up, maybe not all at once, but it has the potential to come up in increments such that you're 
turning over your portfolio 100% of the time on a given year. But I, I think the the other set of circumstances are are also where this these types of questions may come up, and that that's aligned with, as we had mentioned, for example, like a bonus check, or you get like a windfall for some reason, maybe from an inheritance, something like that, or it, it's just something that where okay, you've been kind of waiting, collecting money from, you know, paycheck to paycheck. And all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's six months have gone by and you haven't really thought much about it. Or mm. obviously <laughs> last year. That, that does happen a decent amount. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm and, saving. You know, I'm doing a great job. I, my, I'm not uh, spending too much. I'm building up. And life just happens. And six months later, it's like, oh, yeah, I haven't actually done anything with this money yet. Right. And last year, I, what I was going to add on is you, you probably had plenty of excuses not to think about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just got just got to get the day and right. nine months go by just day by day. Yeah. And, and there's plenty of reasons to, for example, ignore, you know, the market, because I, I'm sure there's been plenty of fearful headlines about what's going on. You know, the fact that we have obviously the global pandemic, but also the repercussions of that from an economic standpoint have been pretty clearly printed on most newspapers. The fact that, you know, we're printing tons of debt, that we're have stimulus packages going out the door, you know, trillions of dollars flowing around. And all of this, frankly, doesn't sound good for the market. Um, and that's reason enough to kind of just put it out of your mind for you know months on end side note i wonder so this is totally off topic i remember seeing a meme uh or a joke of someone had uh of uh, old floppy disk the like three and a half inch floppy disk that has a hard plastic cover and some young kid see like cool you 3D printed a save button. And I I think about like the icons on my phone for uh, answering a phone call and hanging up. And it looks like a old phone receiver that like you held your hand, what had a earpiece and a mouthpiece, and it's still the same shape. And so we still have that. That's where the save button comes from. It goes on the disk. I wonder how long the idea of printing money. Well, like, we'll just like be the phrase to be used. Uh, you, you said two things related to printing, and I was like, well, because they're not actually printing anything. Like, even Ben Bernanke a long time ago said, like, now yeah, we just make the changes in the computer. And I was, I was told, sorry, I was totally distracted by just this concept of like, we're we're using printing as an expression, even though no one actually prints anything anymore. Yeah, and. That I think that's an interesting point because it, it kind of adds to the whole fear aspect, meaning, wait, they can just add zeros in a computer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're all supposed to feel happy about this. <laughs> Why shouldn't we be running for the hills if, you know, somebody fat fingers a zero or yeah. <laughs> if a politician wants to add more zeros to, you know, his bank account or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, sorry to, to, derail that but uh yeah it's it's go go on so my 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 high level point is kind of the notion that 
it, it seems like there's always a reason why now isn't the best time to invest. And humans are good with coming up with reasons to be afraid of things in general. So even if we look back over the last 10 years, after the market had fallen, you know, 53% in 2008, you know, through when it bottomed out, it had a huge market bull market after that for the following, as we said, like 10, 11, 12 years. However, along that entire time, there's been headlines left and right about why that particular time wasn't a good time to invest in the market. For example, in 2009, there was a headline soon after the, the big crash and the bottom out that, you know, the Fed plans to inject another trillion dollars to aid the economy. You know, we've heard these trillion dollars. Money. Yeah, keep printing money, injecting it, like using a needle and just <laughs> inserting it into the economy. Well, you know, that was after we saw a big run up in the market. And if you saw that headline, you said, oh, wait, no, this can't be good. Well, you would have missed out on all the rest. And then a few months later, in April of 2009, we saw that another 600,000 jobs were lost. Like, this can't be good. Things are going to, you know, fall under and we're going to see doom and gloom for the next decade. Well, no, that's not what happened. Yeah. And, you know, you can read these headlines all the way up until now. And there's always been something saying, you know, now's the worst time to invest. But if you had sat on the sidelines for the last decade, there's, there's almost no catching up at that point. Meaning your worst fears uh, not only didn't end up transpiring, but the opportunity costs of the amount that you've lost, well, th th that's kind of, again, a hole that even the best money manager on the planet won't be able to help you dig out of. I think that that's a, a good phrase I want to kind of focus on that like that sitting on the sidelines because as a, as you were talking I was thinking how the the feelings they do come up not not so much in clients like who are managing their money but I, I know I know I have some friends who do and they they will have some thoughts and feelings but it the feelings I tend to deal with the most are with clients who have company stock and they understand how risky it is to keep so much of their net worth in a single company stock. It IPO'd in the last couple of years, there's vesting, there's RSUs, there's ISOs and non-qualified stock options. And, and so this makes up such a large percentage. And so that they they know they want to sell out. Okay, the, or at least they'll sell a percentage. We'll have, have a conversation. We're gonna sell 40%, 50%. Like we'll, fi we'll figure out a number but we want to reduce that risk because they, they know, and actually, especially in the last few years, a lot of the IPOs have done well. A lot of the companies in tech in the Bay Area have done well. So this stock has actually sometimes increased dramatically. And so they, they want to sell to reduce that risk. Like they, they understand that concept. They're not, they're trying not to increase the risk, but they don't necessarily they still have the same feelings of fear and anxiety. And one of the things I've, I have found through conversations with them, it usually comes because they don't have a plan for what to do with the money. 
they don't want to be sitting on the sidelines. They don't want to sell their company stock and sit in cash, but they also don't want to stay in the company stock. And so it's usually going back to that kind of putting a plan together. And that's not, it's not necessarily financial independence or savings or spending like this. That's part of it, but it's, for them, it's usually kind of, I just want to have a plan for when I sell my company stock, where do I put the money? I don't want to sit on the sidelines. And so for some clients, it's, well, let's, let's make sure we actually have a good cash reserve. It, it actually is okay to keep a decent amount in, in a cash reserve, and that'll help you sleep at night. We're not going to use this for long-term goals. This is just helping you make sure that no matter what happens in your life, financially you're stable. Uh, but then it goes back to kind of the first thing we talked about uh, of allocating or designing an asset allocation in line with time frame and goals. And so if you're looking to buy a house with your proceeds, but not if it's this year or next year, leave it in cash, leave the down payment in cash. If it's a few years out, maybe a very conservative asset allocation. But if it's not a shorter term time frame, but still kind of, so it's a longer term, clients actually tend to appreciate the idea of we're selling company stock and moving to an aggressive, diversified portfolio. Even if it's just the S&P 500, but usually it's a combination of large cap, small cap, international emerging markets, but it could be an all stock portfolio, still a really aggressive portfolio for long-term growth. And they actually have, have no problem kind of coming in at all time highs because it's actually, re they're reducing their risk. The, their company's stock is also at all time highs sometimes, and they're selling out of that and they're actually feeling more positive. And so I, I think it's that, that concept of sitting on the sideline is a almost, like almost a contributor to that that stress and anxiety that that was it the ever present angst that it, I think ha having a it's having a plan for them it's like it's what is the money for if it's long term then it's okay to be aggressive and now actually we don't care if it goes down if it's short term leave it we don't even take the risk in the first place but if it's short term or it's a reserve position, sitting in cash is not seen as sitting on the sideline. It's actually doing its job. And if it's long term, then we're going to participate and we can, we can separate. Like it, it's also not sitting on the side. We don't have to worry about those downturns. And so I, I think it's I, that phrase sitting on the sideline. And if you're ever trying to make a decision related to that, I think that just the, trying to make that decision is almost what increases the stress and anxiety of making the wrong decision of like of not knowing what to do. And so I'm I'm asking you now, now like have you seen any observations like that either for yourself or with clients or with friends and family of it may not be that markets are all time highs, but just I don't know what this money is for. What should I be doing with this money? 
I think you you make a very good point. It comes down to scenarios where there is a, a process in place, a methodology that's followed, and versus a scenario where it's kind of more ad hoc. So it, it makes perfect sense where if there's a process in place, well, the goal there is before things become unhinged or before calamity happens or even before the investment process begins, an understanding is determined in terms of what's a sensible allocation and how does this allocation align with an individual or a couple's or a family's risk preferences. And once that's determined, well, then it becomes a lot easier. Meaning, you know, if one position like the ISOs and the stock options have gone up a lot, well, now we just follow the formula. Okay, our goal is to be back to a 60-40. And all of a sudden, you know, 90% of the household wealth is tied up in equities. Most of it is in the stock. So we need to pair that back. We need to get more into bonds. And we need to realign ourselves based upon our predetermined objective. So, you know, it's kind of, okay, this happened. Now let's follow the steps to get back to where we want to be. And it it does take out a lot of the emotion from the process because there's a plan in terms of we're at A and we want to get to Z. So we just, you know, follow the steps to get there. And it it makes things a lot easier because, again, then now there's less angst on, okay, what happens with the next money that comes in? Well, we, we, we know what happens. It gets factored into our overall household allocation. And we actually know where that money is specifically tagged to go to. So it it definitely helps having this type of procedure or methodology in place, you know, process, as we keep saying, versus a more ad hoc approach, because then you're just, again, left with these questions. Okay, now what, you know, what, what happens with this and what happens with that and so on. I think you're right. I think you're exactly the key of, of focusing on process. And so it's the, you're never kind of worried about selling at all time highs. It's selling for some other reason, selling because we're rebalancing, sell because it's vesting. It's like all time highs almost never factors into that process. And I think, yeah, I think exactly if we can, can focus on the process and knowing where the money's going regardless of all time highs like the like if if you have that process then headlines don't even enter the decision making calculus that's i I agree i think that 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 process perspective and if you can focus on that that that's how you remove those negative feelings Right. I think it it's hopefully coming up with a way to kind of quiet that, that little voice that, that certainly tells all of us, but this time's different. But, but this time, <laughs> this time could be the time that X, Y, and Z happens. And because of A, B, and C, and, you know, like the A, B, and C this time could be that, well, yeah, we are at the highest debt to GDP levels since probably World War II. And 
you know, even before this whole mess, we were approaching 100% debt to GDP levels, probably the highest we've seen since, you know, World War II. And now we've shot up to like 130, 140%. So there's certainly reason to believe that that's not ideal. And at the same time, the market has continued to climb higher and higher. If we look at the, the PE ratio of the S&P, well, it, it's almost uh, in the upper th 30s, which is the last times it's been there is during the great financial crisis and the dot-com bubble. It, this is bubble territory for sure, meaning during these periods, there's been irrational exuberance and it's typically been followed by periods of downward movement in equity prices because there's been a reversion back to sensible valuations. Even looking at a, a more um, nuanced measure, the Schiller ratio, it kind of shows the same thing. All this does is it looks at PE, but adjusts for inflation. So it, it gives you a, a more time-weighted viewpoint on how PEs look across various periods of time. But at this, this mismetric is also saying that we're in bubble territory. So that there are definite reasons that are quantitative in nature that are saying we're in a territory that that's not ideal. So I can certainly understand why individuals would have concern about, uh, but this time's different. <laughs> and I, I agree. <laughs> Every time is going to be different, including this time. Well, what, and I don't want to go into the, the federal debt percentage of GDP kind of data point because we've talked about in the past how the the debt service so kind of the the percent of interest that we're paying as and kind of how much we're paying towards debt as a percentage of gdp is kind of the more important factor and because the federal reserve kind of gets to decide the interest rate they pay on that debt that as long as the debt service is manageable, I'm not as worried about that total debt as a percentage of GDP. And it's not something to pay attention to. It's kind of, it's not as simple as that, or it's easy to control. But kind of, as, and you have to start into inflationary concerns and modern monetary theory. But like that, I can almost kind of, I use this as an example of for every argument that we're an all-time high and there's uh, bad things on the horizon, there's going to be a counter-argument. It's like, well, maybe that's that, that might be true, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be bad things on the horizon. Like, there's not necessarily a causal link from your data points to our fears in the future. It's it. They're both are within the range of possibilities. Yeah, that, that certainly. Um, I, I recall that that deeper discussion we had on on debt and GDP and, and concerns around that. It's it's probably more applicable now to that we've actually been through a, a large surge in debt to to kind of think about the points we made there. But it, at a, at a high level, yeah, the the notion that I see it in terms of concern is. There can be typically, you know, a wide range of outcomes that can happen. And then kind of where we go from here based upon those outcomes 
is where things get a little tricky because again, yeah, things could go pretty badly and then get better, or they can just kind of stay mediocre and then slowly start to get better. Or we can just kind of see a, a gradual rising in productivity such that the debt kind of gets taken care of that way through, yeah. through growth. And we don't know which of those paths things will take. And that's where things get tricky because frankly, it might be safe to say nobody knows for sure. <laughs> That, that I, I do feel confident saying, stating that as well. No, nobody knows for sure. <laughs> so, and, and so the, the whole point is, given that, what do you do? You know, what can you possibly do to handle all those all these competing concerns? Yeah, I, I think it kind of goes back to that that focusing on process. The other other thing I think about is when talking to clients, trying to get them to separate their investment statements from their lifestyle. And this is not necessarily easy. This kind of goes, there's lots, there's probably a long conversation, but like just how money and life are tied, especially in our culture. But if you can separate investment savings from lifestyle, hopefully that would relieve some of the stress and anxiety related to, to money. It's kind of dealing with the pandemic and kids and family and like those stresses aren't going away that like deal with those. Those are the kind of the important things to deal with. But if it, if you kind of have a good process, hopefully you don't, the, the money side isn't adding to your stress. And I have one client who participated in IPO, his, his company went public uh, a couple of years ago, and the stock has gone up dramatically. So something like four or five times what it IPO'd at. And so we put together an ISO strategy. He exercised March of 2020, uh, as much lower than it is now. It's now, I think it's four times what it is. And so we keep having these conversations of, should we follow this ISO strategy? We're going to wait 12 months before selling or sell now because it has gone up so much and you'll have a much, much bigger tax bill, but you've re removed that risk of it going down between now and when we execute the kind of finish out the strategy. And I'm almost agnostic to it. Like kind of either strategy will be fine. One will have a much higher tax bill, but low, less investment risk. One keeps the investment risk, but probably has a much lower tax bill. But the reason I was agnostic kind of left it up to the client to decide was that either way, he gets to live the lifestyle he wants that we had discussed a year ago when putting this plan in place. He only needs to sell this stock for something like about what it was when we exercised. Like we, did, we had planned on no growth at all. And actually, I think we'd even planned out kind of, it could even go down. 
I think 40 or 50% before he, he had to change his lifestyle. And for him, changing lifestyle was he would have to work an extra two or three years, mostly to get more stock to vest. But kind of that, that was his trade-off. He's, he's taking on that investment risk. And the downside is that he has to work an extra two or three years. But in this case, the upside happened. It went up and he retired at the first of the year. So, and he's still working away from the strategy. And we've had these conversations of, yes, if the stock goes all the way back down, has a negative 75% year in the next, or has a negative 75% in the next few months, goes all the way back down to, to what it was when we put this plan together, you still get to live your lifestyle. You still, you'll be retired. You don't have to go back to work. You, All of the things you said you wanted to do with your life, you still get to do those. And because it took him a while to kind of really internalize this, but because he, she truly understands, he does have the capacity to take on that investment risk. That even though it is at all time highs and potentially overvalued and it, all of these other kind of investment risks are there. He still feels comfortable holding on to his investment risks, executing our tax strategy of waiting until March to sell to get the better tax benefits. And that if the stock drops dramatically, he gets still gets to maintain his lifestyle. And I try to emphasize this with everyone I talk to, not, not just clients, but friends, family, prospects, kind of, it, if you're saving well, you have a good kind of, you know how much your, your income, your saving is a good, a good percentage, kind of managing your expenses, and you have a decent investment strategy moving forward, like you still get to maintain your lifestyle. That's the key. And so if you can focus on what you want to do with your life, rather than your bank account or your investment statement that's a that's the other way that all of these feelings of anxiety and stress related to money can kind of fall by the wayside that you get to live the life you want and you don't have to worry about the stock market it just it just shouldn't even enter into your day-to-day decision-making process regarding anything Kind of, it's not part of the process for the lifestyle that you want. And so I'm curious, like, do, what are some other examples of? I, I don't think it's a cognitive dissonance, but but that that the stress coming from money that maybe shouldn't be. If, I'm trying to think of how to phrase that question. Yeah, it, it sounds like it, it relates to that previous conversation we had where we touched upon that 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 Venn diagram of concerns of willingness, ability, and need, mm-hmm. where when it comes to coming up with an investment portfolio that makes sense, you want to think about, are you, is a client willing to take that much risk? Meaning, is it going to keep them up at night? The mm-hmm. whole point of investing is to create wealth over time, but if you're not going to sleep for the next 10 years, it's probably not going to be worth it. Health is also important too. 
Yeah. So you have to be willing to take on the risk that comes with the market. If not, we can, you know, ratchet it down. There must, there's likely a level of risk that's sensible for any client out there. But, you know, at the same time, a client, a client's income and desires and goals have to have the ability to take on that risk as well. And, you know, it sounds like, for example, with your, your client with the ISOs that even though the client is willing, it's also true that the client has the ability to take on that risk, meaning if things go down, he's not going to be in the street. Mm -hmm. So that that's also important just because somebody is happy with a incredibly aggressive casino doesn't mean they have the ability to sustain the shocks that can come with it. And then the, the third thing, which is also kind of true in that, this situation with your client is or that that's important to think about is, does the client need to take on that much risk? And, you know, from this perspective, the client doesn't necessarily need to, but again, they, they're able to, and they're willing to, so it's not a big deal. Yeah. It can, for, for context and reference, a big part of the plan was we had sold a large amount already and kind of taken a decent amount of risk off the table. So that was the, we reduced the investment risk and we paid a really big tax bill at that time. So it kind of in plan for being able to hold on to this for the, and it's kind of it, when it usually comes to company stock, it it's in a spectrum of kind of investment risk and taxes. And so kind of, you can remove all the investment risk, but pay a really big tax bill get, or on the other end, get the optimal tax strategy but it's kind of the highest investment risk. And like everyone else, we've met somewhere in the gray area in the middle and, and put together strategies, a little bit of both. So that, so he kind of, that that's the context for this particular amount of stock he could hold on to because we already sold some and we sold enough to support his lifestyle. Right. And it, it certainly could be the case where you know, there's an individual that, they have enough money, they're willing to take on risk, but at the end of the day, they don't really need to. They can meet all of their goals, handle anything that they want to do, even take care of heirs and whatnot with a lower risk portfolio. Mm-hmm. So it, it it's important to first, you know, just do that analysis to understand, is there a necessity? You know, for some people, it might be a necessity, meaning you know, we really need to ratchet this up a bit if you really want to meet these goals. And at that point, you know, that conversation can be had. But again, these are all different questions and saying, okay, the market's at an all-time high. What do we do now? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think exactly right. It's, it's the almost, you should never be selling because the market is at an all-time high. If, if we're trying to like oversimplify it, it's it, and you should never be avoiding buying because the market is an all time high. Like that, that is not the reason to buy or sell. All right. Good stuff, Aaron. You know what? Today was a relatively emotional day. Uh, and I, I, I I love thinking about focusing on the process. I think that that was kind of, as soon as you said that word, I almost got excited. I think that that really is 
the key. Um, it, it kind of like comes back to like the serenity prayer that we've used so many times. The uh, serenity, accept the things you cannot change the courage to, to affect the things you can and the wisdom to know the difference. I think this is the, like t today is that, that wisdom part of you can't make decisions based on all time highs or on the flip side, on all time lows either or, or big drops. Like you just, that, that should not be why you're making investment decisions. It's something else that's more important. That's why you make the investment decisions you do. Right. To just kind of also sum things up a little bit, what I try to keep in the back of my mind is the reason we're putting money to work for the future is we think things will be better in the future, meaning we think, you know, the world, the planet will be more productive and economies will grow and the investments will return. And you know, if you look at the long-term trends of this, like global GDP, going back, frankly, you can go back to 1 million BC even and, and just kind of track that forward. Uh, on There's a really strong upward trend that the, the planet does better generation after generation after generation. And, and this has been true for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I, I hope that this time will not be different. And... I have a good amount of optimism that it won't. It, it certainly could, but then uh, at that point, we have a lot more important things to think about than our investment yeah. portfolio. That's, that's a, a good point. Like, I, I think you and I are both tend to be optimists and things will move forward. Things will get better. And sometimes you focus on the things that make you happy today and but don't worry about tomorrow kind of per se like we have a good process today and don't worry about what the potential results are right great well th thank you for for your insights today trish i appreciate it Thanks, Aaron. I, I appreciated having this conversation with you and I, I always enjoy them. So th thanks very much. And thanks everybody for listening. If you're enjoying these conversations, do subscribe to our podcast. Okay. Bye. Bye. We appreciate you joining us today for this episode of the Mind Money Spectrum podcast. Be sure to visit mindmoneyspectrum.com to access the entire library of episodes. Remember, it's not black and white, but the wide spectrum of gray area where you get to pursue the freedoms you want in life. Opinions voiced in this material are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. All performance referenced is historical and has no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested in directly. Have a nice day.